0: It's not my role to intervene or to alter the message. I think every interpreter would say that you're there to facilitate the communication, not to take over. And welcome everyone to Slater
1: Pod. So last week, Team Slater was traveling and hosting a SlaterCon remote, very successful. But today we're really happy to have Jan Rausch on the pod. So Jan's a successful professional conference and business interpreter for German, English and French. Uh, Hi Jan, where does this podcast find you today?
0: Hi Florian. Uh, Hi, everyone. Thanks for having me. I'm um, in Manchester at the moment, which is where I'm I'm based, so I'm not always in Manchester due to my work, but you've found me in my home place, Manchester today, sunny sunny Manchester.
1: Sunny Manchester, yeah. Overly sunny. As always. (laughs) There you go. So, yeah, now we find you in Manchester, but I assume you're traveling a lot, right?
0: I am traveling a lot again. Uh, um, As you were saying, I'm a freelance interpreter. Conference and business is kind of what I market myself as. And you said rightly, my working languages are German, English and French. So um, with the ABC lettering, um, it's German A, that's my native language. E, E, um, English, is my B language. So that's the one I can interpret into and out of, but it's not my native. And French is my C language, so that's passive, as it were. So I only interpret out of French into German and not the other way around. But yes, you were saying in terms of traveling, um, the whole on-site market has kind of reopened big time for me anyway, and for a lot of colleagues as well. So uh, I'm actually recovering from COVID at the moment, that I, which I picked up on my last job, most likely. Uh, but that's a different story. So um, the last three weeks have been um, quite travel intense for me. So Scotland, two different jobs in Scotland, and then uh, Germany, Italy, Germany, Italy again, and then finally uh, coming back. Yeah, so, uh, and then the, the travel situation at the moment isn't isn't straightforward with airports and staff shortages everywhere. So it's quite tiring when you're used to uh, remote work for, for the pandemic.
1: Yeah, we'll definitely touch on that, the uh, various uh, uh, pros and cons of remote, uh, one of them is, uh, you know, not, not, not getting sick, but there's a, that's a pro, but uh, <laughs> there's there's a con to it, of course, as well as we uh, learned recently. So let's just go back a little bit in, in, in your career. So you worked originally as a, as a teacher of modern languages before you became an interpreter is uh, what, what our research uh, turned up there. So what motivated you to make uh, the move from teaching to interpreting?
0: That's very true. Yes. Um, I mean, the motivation for both jobs for me were just my love of languages. So I've always been into foreign languages uh, and then uh, when it came to deciding what to do at university, I just went for the two languages I liked and that I knew English and French. And then one of the obvious choices was was to study for a teaching degree. So um, that's what I did. And then what what made me change careers, to be honest with you, is was the frustration of teaching foreign languages. Uh, after a while, I was teaching in the UK at that time. And, um, you know, in an English speaking country, uh, foreign languages are I find it even, uh, it's much harder to teach them and, and to, to motivate learners and so on in a way. So um, I just knew that I wanted to do something else and I want to do something else with lang- languages again, where my language skills are m- much more challenged. So back in 2009, I stopped teaching. I'd been a head of department, by the way. So there was a lot of admin work and so on. And um, I just did an MA at a local university in interpreting and translating. It was a combined MA. Um, which was good because I, at the time I didn't really know much about interpreting. And, and then doing that one year course, I realized that I much preferred interpreting over translating.
1: Why? Why? Cause I, 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 preferred the other way around. I was a translator that kind of dabbled for a brief period in interpreting, but more at the uni and then I'm like, there's no way I could possibly like split my brain into two halves and like interpret. So I'm like, I don't even try, but what made it, what made you think this is uh, what you want to pursue?
0: I mean i could I could explain what I dislike about translating or what I like about interpreting I'd rather do the positive aspect which is what I like about interpreting it's just uh you know it gives you that um that extra kick buzz of the moment it's it's obviously as you were saying um especially when you talk about simultaneous concentrating on different things at the same time uh, um it's challenging but that's what makes it um just enjoyable for me um you know not, not every single moment is enjoyable it can be stressful at times to the where you think oh what have I let myself in for today but normally it's just that bus and it's um it's um you still have to do a lot of admin work as a freelance interpreter you have to do a lot of uh terminology work and and preparation but still once you're on the job you know you don't have to motivate yourself there's no procrastination uh, uh, as a possibility at all when once you're in the booth what once you're on a on a table in a press conference or wherever you are, once you're at a table um, with some negotiating parties, you can't just postpone um, the job. You, you have to crack on with it. I like it. Uh, and also really like the um, the the variety of, of topics and experiences and people you meet. I think um, a lot of people will agree with me when I say that in terms of those who are in, in the translation market, uh, most translators... Uh, specialize in certain fields because it works better for them and most interpreters do not um, specialize because there are fewer interpreters um, and there's fewer there are fewer occasions where interpreting is needed so if you were just to specialize in one field you wouldn't do a lot of interpreting you would do a lot of translation or whatever uh, alongside it Uh, so most interpreters are, are you know Experts in a lot of fields, but they can always, so you know, just prepare for any m- almost any kind of topic. And I like that the just the variety, the change.
1: So, how did you break into the quite competitive market of freelance interpreting? Like, how did you start market yourself to potential clients? Start from scratch.
0: I didn't break into it. I think, I, I, like most people, I eased myself into it, and I think that's probably one of the. Um, The most difficult things when you start when you establish yourself as a freelance interpreter it's very unlikely that a lot of people would say oh recently qualified ma from there and there yes we'll just book them for that that conference because um there's a lot an an element of trust there so then they need to know you're good so it takes quite a while to establish yourself so i was doing a lot of translation at the same time And um, having, you know, worked before, I also had some financial backup, so I didn't feel any pressure to just accept any old job because of the money. Um, But I think the trick or the several tricks of breaking into the market eventually are, um, I mean, for one thing, it's pretty obvious, but you need to be good at what you're doing uh, and you need to work hard for that. It's not just your language skills, it's your general knowledge, it's your, um, you know, terminology work for specific topics, and the other thing is is networking uh, so apart from marketing yourself in the you know in the client facing uh, uh, respect as in social media website business cards and so on what's almost more important in in interpreting or certainly in conference interpreting circles is is finding um, colleagues established colleagues. Um, who are prepared to give you a chance, who you will chat to and who will then say, oh, I, I can't do this job, can you do it for me? Or who who are putting a team together and then slowly but surely, they get to see that you're actually very good or quite good. And then they, they recommend you to others. So it's all that networking, um, which these days with online you know, tools available, is it's not so difficult. And the other thing that helps networking or similar to networking is joining professional associations. Because once you, you're a member of a professional association, you can network, you can um you take part in their in their training events, starting out as a freelancer courses, for instance. Um but you can also after a while, once you've um, got a certain country within the professional association, you can be listed on the directory and quite a few clients look for interpreters on, on on directories of associations that have a good reputation.
1: So what are some of your kind of key clients and sectors you work for? You did mention it's quite general, you don't want to specialize in any particular but area, but probably over, over time, a few kind of stronger areas have materialized for you, I would assume?
0: Yes, uh, that's absolutely true. So uh, one, um, it's, it's not a, an industry, it's a, it's a scenario type of job that uh, I do a lot is European Works Councils. So um, I'm not sure whether everybody's familiar with the European Works Council, so maybe I could quickly elaborate. Uh, so if there, it's it's based on a directive from the European Union or two directives, uh, the first version and, and then the more recent version, which stipulates that um, any company or a group of companies that has um, activities within, within at least two member states of the European Union... Um, Uh, with a certain amount of employees, which I'm not sure of what what the the threshold is, they have to have a European Works Council, which means that um, employee representation does not only take place on a national level, but also on a European level. So these European Works Councils um, have their own agreements uh, between the employee representatives and the management and work in different ways. Sometimes they're called a forum, sometimes European Works Council and these kind of things. But they tend to convene as a plenary meeting at least once a year often twice a year, and then reps from the different countries come together with management and also for internal meetings, and they all need interpreting. So there there is a lot of um, work coming through European Works Councils, and a lot of languages um, are often represented that you don't see in other um, commercial meetings. Um, But apart from European Works Councils, there's a lot of work in, in medical or pharmaceutical. In the pharmaceutical field that I do, so things like... Clinical trials, when they have investigator meetings, you know, when a new clinical trial is being set up a phase three uh, one, phase, phase three is the one, is the last one that you need before approval of a new um, drug or product, um, um, the, the clinical staff, so the investigators and the, and, the, um, and the nurses and so forth, they need to be trained in the protocol of the, the trial. So they often come together in one place or sometimes online now. Uh, and then I, I trained in the procedure of, of how to administer the clinical trial, how to report adverse events and outcomes and so forth. Um, I mean, other other um, recurrent kind of events are sales meetings, when um, the sales forces <clears throat> from different countries of an international company come together, or when a new product is launched and they're being trained in how to promote or sell the new product. So I do that for the ICT sector, automotive, Uh, um, beauty products and so forth. Um, A bit different, I also do political or um, diplomatic interpreting, um, which is um, accompanying delegations, mostly delegations coming from Germany to the UK. Uh, So quite a frequent topic is that they would travel to to Scotland because of renewable energies. You know, um, Scotland is, is very big on the renewables and we need them now, like hydrogen and so forth. Um, so often a small delegation from one of the German states, federal states would come with some politicians, but also some representatives from business and I would accompany them and, and see ministers or, or companies. Um, so that's more, that's not simultaneous interpreting the booth that's accompanying the delegation and doing liaison or um, consecutive interpreting.
1: It's probably also a little bit of advisory kind of work and helping maybe a little bit as well. Or is it very linguistically focused that part?
0: It's linguistically focused. It's not advisory. Um, so certainly, that kind of work because I, um, it would not be my role to, um, you know, kind of direct the the course of the discussion or anything. Um, there couldn't. There can be advisory, as in in cultural negotiation and, and explaining things. You know, for instance, um, a very straightforward example is if you, if you if you go to Scotland, uh, quite often the German delegation might refer to Scotland as a region. And I might advise them that many representatives, certainly from the, the ruling party, the SNP, do not like to see Scotland called a region, for them it's a nation, these kind of things, uh, you know, it, it's helping uh, things go smoothly. But you, it's not my role to intervene or to alter the message. I mean, I think every interpreter would say that you're, um, you're there to facilitate the communication, not to take over.
1: Yeah. So what's the split between like our, like simultaneous and consecutive and like, when we're talking about simultaneous, like, is it often, do you work in pairs? Do you do solo? If you do solo, like how long can one do solo simultaneous? Like, that's uh, super hard, of course.
0: Yeah. this I mean, in terms of the splits between consecutive and interpreting, are you asking about for my personal work? Yeah, for work? your
1: personal work, yeah.
0: As a conference interpreter, which is what mainly I would refer um, myself as, Um, um it's... 80% simultaneous, if not more. Um, and consecutive is actually, which might surprise, sound surprising for someone who's never done, um, then it's simultaneous is actually easier for me than consecutive because I'm so much more used to it, but you're right. Consecutive, simultaneous interpreting. So, you know, just to make clear what we're talking about, I'm listening through my earphones and speaking into the microphone in the other language at the same time. And I'm also listening to my own output to make sure I'm not saying anything that's wrong or that I'm finished my sentences and so forth. Um, simultaneous interpreting, um, cognitively speaking is probably more challenging when you, you know, when you, when you do it for the first time and you're absolutely right, simultaneous, uh, as a, as a standard should not be done uh, should should not be carried out by just one interpreter. So, um. There is a, you know, you can you can do simultaneous jobs on your own if you say they're up to 30 minutes. And then you agree with the client quite clearly that, you know, after 30 minutes, I won't stop after 30 minutes. Okay, there's a bit of leeway. We can go up to 40, but after that, um, you know, it's not possible. And then it, it's, it's, it's often required to make that clear to people who try to book you that, oh, it's just an hour. Can you do it on your own? Or, oh, it's just one person listening. Can you do it on your own? And I know that there are markets where this sometimes happens, but it's, it's not it's not as it should be. And it, sh- it shouldn't be encouraged, it should be discouraged, actually. So yes, normal work is, is in a pair of two and you do take turns every 20 to 30 minutes. And if it's really challenging work or long days, you could even do it in a team of three.
1: Now, when the other person takes uh, over, like, do you continue to listen, or do you just like totally take a break and um, discontinue?
0: You certainly don't just totally take a break. You have to. Um, I mean, we can also talk about the difference between online and remote in a second, but generally speaking, yeah, because that's that's quite different in in, in this um, in this respect. But the the general principle is you're you're there as a backup for for starters, if if you if you're if your partner's voice fails or whatever, and as someone to help with, let's say, you know, your terminology or a or, or, or number, a figure, a name, and so on. By the same token, you can't be there a hundred percent of the time. It's okay to say to your partner, "I'm just going to the toilet," um, or that kind of thing. I'll just go for some fresh air for two minutes. Let uh, me um, you know that's that's okay. And you also have to use that time to. <clears throat> recharge your batteries and then kind of um, relax a bit. So it, it's a, it's a fine line between switching off, which you shouldn't do, um, and, and concentrating too much or, or trying to help your partner too much and then just distracting him or her. Um, yeah. And obviously, you know, in in an ideal scenario, that's what we request from organisers and, and clients is that um, even though there's two of us and we're taking turns, there should be a break every 90 minutes anyway. So, you should not really need to run away from your partner that much.
1: for those of uh, us and the listeners who are not super familiar with like the challenges of uh, simultaneous interpreting, like what are some of the kind of general challenges that any uh, simultaneous interpreter needs to kind of overcome and kind of get used to? And maybe for you personally, are there any is there anything that you find particularly challenging on the linguistic side, when it comes to the speaker, holding your attention, things like that?
0: Oh, where do I start? <laughs> there are many challenges. I mean, like I said, the, the initial, um, we're focusing on this on the simultaneous part here. Uh, the initial thing is, the main challenge is to, um, you know, to, to combine all these processes in your brain and not mess up. So you need to make sure you're listening, uh, hearing well, um, you're Processing, you're understanding what's actually being said and not just kind of trying to analyze one little word after another. So, so it can't be literal. You need to get the message right. So the next challenge is then to form, formulate good language that is um, easy to understand and follow for your listeners. Uh, and then all the other challenge is to listen to yourself and make sure that that language actually is easy. Or if the original language isn't easy and it's deliberately, deliberately obscure, you have to do the same, of course. You know, you're... Um, you're trying to sound more or less like the original speaker, but then other challenges are, um, you know, um, having access to relevant documents at the same time and being able to use them without losing focus of of this the speaker and the, and the main proceedings. Um, so it's it's a it's multitasking is something you need to be able to do. You need to be able to have your laptop to hand um, in an interpreting booth and look things up while you're, while you're speaking or while you're interpreting. Sound can obviously sometimes be a challenge and speed, speed of speakers. Um, If you go into a a booth and you look at these consoles that are used, um, a lot of them have a slow down button and I have no idea why it was ever invented. And sometimes online or people send a message to the speaker, the speaker speaking too fast, please ask them to slow down. Um, I'm going to, you know, stick my head above the parapet here, I think that never works. People do it, but they might slow down for one second and then they go back to to the original speech. Some people just speak very fast and they, you have to find ways of dealing with that. Um, and there's also a difference actually between some people who speak very fast but make perfect sense and you just have to try and get it with a flow. Sometimes you have to um, work out where the redundancies are, so the repetitions that you don't need to repeat or if they're using a long the name of an organization and you know the acronym for it, you can use the acronym instead. Um, But that's one thing of dealing with these kind of fast speakers is easier than with the ones who are nervous, who maybe not aren't presenting in their native tongue, who are speakers of let's say Spanish, but feel like they have to present it in English and then reading from a script. So um, uh, that's a challenge, but these are all challenges um, that we as interpreters have strategies for that you also learn at university. And maybe another challenge, if I may, is um, the differences between languages. So, working with German, a lot of people know that if you have a subordinate clause in German, the verb will come at the end. And you know, subordinate clauses are, are normal in 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 most in 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 informal in, in speech or in any kind of speech. Uh, so, you often have to, if you're interpreting from German into English, you and someone's a good speaker and has some very you know elaborate sentence structure, you have to wait quite a while to to work out what they are saying, you know, uh, so you have to anticipate, you have to hedge sometimes, you know, make it open and, or, and just use that, um, um, decalage. Decalage is the few seconds that you speak after the original message. And you might sometimes have to kind of play with your decalage a bit like a, you know, like an elastic band to, to kind of fall behind a bit because you need to wait for the message to be complete and then to catch up again. Uh, And the other way around, if you're interpreting from English into German and you're making long sentences, you need to really be aware of what you've just said. Like I said, listen to yourself uh, so you know, have I said the verb yet or do I still need to add it at the end? These kind of things.
1: Have I not said it? Have I (laughs) said (laughs) it? (laughs)
0: <laughs> yeah, the the word for not the, the that adverb can sometimes also make a massive difference, and if you forget it or if you if you're not sure whether they said it, um, it's challenging.
1: Are you? Pro- do you feel like you continue to progress and get better, or at some point like you reach like a level of mastery that uh, kind of you just stay at?
0: Hmm, you'd have to ask my booth partners. I don't know. Uh, I mean, I, I've, I've, certainly now i'm i'm much more confident than i was when i started or for the first few years whether after i've been doing this for just um almost 12 years now um whether i will still improve i would hope so but um but that's i mean I don't know how do you, I mean, there's a big, there's a big discussion anyway in, in interpreting studies about what is quality in interpreting. How, how do you assess if someone is a good interpreter or not? They'll, you know, you ask different people and they will give you different answers. I definitely, I mean, what I find um, that I've noticed is I've, I've just become much more calm and, you know, I, I know I've been doing this for, for a few years and if, if something's really challenging, I'll still be able to cope. And if, if something isn't perfect, then that's just what it is, because that's the other beauty of interpreting, You, no single interpreter in the world will ever get everything absolutely right.
1: Another topic is, I mean, you've lived in Manchester for what, two two decades, roughly 20 years, right? But you're a native speaker of German. Like how do you stay fully kind of up to date in your mother tongue, right? I mean, I, I mean, I lived abroad for almost a decade and I started to struggle with like for example, the business language. I mean, when I, you know, visited Switzerland, like I don't really know how to, I don't know any of these words in like Swiss German, right? So how do you stay fully up to date living outside the country?
0: Yeah, that's a good question. It's a good question because the first thing that's required is awareness. I mean, uh, I think there are some people who aren't aware of what you call language attrition that you've kind of forget bits about your own language. Um, so, um, I mean, it's very easy these days to stay, um, you know, up to up to scratch or up to date with your own language or any language by by just using all the media that is available. So you know, I um, um I watch the news in German, I read I, re- I read German newspapers and so forth. Um, but I also find um, that it's not just the language um, itself. So the terminology that you need to um, follow it's also, um, let's say, social linguistic. Um, development so things like um, gender inclusive language Um, I found that a lot of speakers um, of German who live in the UK who've lived in the UK UK for a while wouldn't really um, use the the inclusive form for male and female so rather than a generic masculine form Uh, but then when I work with colleagues who are based in Germany um, I I find they do that a lot more or if I've watched the news in German I find that that a lot more so I I think I, I can also Um, It helps me to work with um, colleagues who are based in Germany or German-speaking country to keep up with with the language. Um, Yeah, but you have to proactively do something about it. It doesn't just happen.
1: Speaking of, like pandemic, I mean, it's ongoing or basically, but the restrictions have been lifted, right? But can we just go back, you know, two, two and a half years what do you see as kind of the impact the long-term impact what has how has the pandemic changed interpreting and what has kind of stayed the same just broadly speaking
0: i mean interpreting itself has absolutely stayed the same the actual the actual process of interpreting uh no matter what people say about rsi remote simultaneous interpreting is remains unchanged you know uh, I, f- I firmly believe that um but then i said r s i. so what's changed obviously is is the the explosion of remote meetings including uh, um interpreted meetings um and and that's not going to go away it's going to be it already has become less and then the next element that is as as it um, developed on the back of this now is hybrid meetings so hybrid hybrid and r s. i are going to be um you know, two elements that will keep us um busy in, in a positive sense because they will give us work. I think new types of um, interpreting or interpreted occasions have have arisen that didn't happen before. A lot of organisations wouldn't have thought about using interpreting uh, before the, the whole world of online meetings started happening. Um, but it will also keep us busy because there are still challenges and hybrid, in particular hybrid meetings um, have a lot of pitfalls. So when I say hybrid, I mean a meeting on site where some of the speakers are connecting remotely, a meeting on site where the interpreters are actually not on site but are interpreting from the homes or from a hub, um, um, or a, a, a meeting um, where some of the interpreters are there and others are not, um, because it 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 involves a, a lot more elements that need to be combined and got, and got right, and it often combines the involves the combination of the analog sound structure. On site with the normal AV system and the the digital sound structure and, and channels being merged and these kind of things, so that um, yeah that's um, it's interesting but also um, I've I've interpreted in hybrid meetings and some have blown me away because they were so perfectly organised and it was just beautiful and and it's beautiful because you can see how happy people are that some are allowed to travel some don't have to travel everybody can do what they want and it works perfectly for everybody. And to me, that's kind of democracy, and that's how it should be. But I've also interpreted in hybrid meetings where people thought, oh, we'll just do hybrid, we'll just stick a laptop there, and that connection goes there, and things went um, pear-shaped big time. So, And there's settings in between. So, yeah, that's that's definitely one thing.
1: Yeah, I wish we could do some hybrid uh, for our conference, right, for SlaterCon, but it's just, it's uh, yeah, the logistics. I don't want to be uh, doing one of those pear-shaped, once so we should, uh, <laughs> we should be careful there. So we spoke about RSI. So uh, there's been uh, quite, quite some, uh, quite some news last week with the UN and the European Union interpreters. But let, let's not go there. Let's go on, um, kind of generally the pros and cons of it. Like from from your point of view, also kind of technically speaking, like how do you like feel about doing remote interpreting from your home, for example, or maybe from a hub? Uh, yeah, just <clears throat> generate your thoughts on RSI.
0: Right. Yeah. Yeah, you're right. I mean, I don't work for uh, the institution. So, you know, we shouldn't really discuss what's happening in the European parliament, although all I can say is it's all very regrettable what's happening. Uh, it's, it's it's not a good show, but anyway. Yeah. But um, these kind of occurrences that are maybe hitting the news now for me shouldn't, you know, s- suggest that RSI remote interpreting is always bad. It has elements that we still need to improve, and it, it it has elements that impact can can impact your health, particularly hearing, that you know must not be forgotten about. But um, it also has positive elements, also for the the amount of work it can provide uh, people with, and um, yeah. So um, you know, if if we talk about sound,
1: <clears throat>
0: um, there are things. Every individual interpreter can do to to protect their hearing when working remotely. Uh, one thing, for instance, is, um, as I was saying, uh, we take turns. So when I'm not interpreting and I'm working remotely from uh, my home office, um, I will take these off and I will switch to loudspeakers. So that gives me, normally I would have um, 100% input just to the earphones. That way I only have 50%. And, and the less you expose your ears to sound, be it toxic sound or other sound, the better. Um, then, you know, you can protect yourself with using the right technology. I, For instance, I use a, a sound limiter at home as well, which uh, allegedly protects me against acoustic shock. And it limits the volume. So that's one thing that makes me feel a bit safer. But obviously, the main thing is is the incoming sound, the quality of that. And uh, there's a lot of uh, frustration, uh, which I think is understandable because interpreters and associations uh, uh, and even clients try so much to educate uh, those who are responsible for producing the sound, i.e., mainly the speakers, on what kind of microphone and uh, Ethernet connection and so on to use. And still, a lot of people are just refusing to do it, or not not getting the message. And it produces sound that sometimes uh, cannot Im- be interpreted. And then it's very important for for us, the interpreters, to make that clear. We can't interpret this, and so that like, you can interpret it because it still works. But the more you do it, the more damage you cause to your hearing. So, so that's still uh, still a big um, a big challenge with the remote interpreting. Uh, I mean, the other element that I should Say it. It can be good for for the interpreter's health as well in terms of um, working from home. Um, it's called non-collocated uh, RSI and and CRSI um, because it, it allows you. I, I think it can allow you to have a healthier lifestyle rather than just traveling. You can decide what what to eat. You eat healthy at home. You can do your exercise in the evening. Um, and you don't need to lose sleep because you're traveling early or you're sleeping in a hotel room and you're not used to it anymore, uh, these kind of things. So there are definitely uh, pros and cons and it's just not going to go away. So that's one thing. Um, yeah, I mean, working from a hub is another thing. <clears throat> uh, I mean, do you think I need to explain quickly what how these hubs work?
1: I think uh, a few people know about these hubs, like people, probably it's more kind of binary, right? Either you're there or you're not, but that there's these hubs.
0: Yeah. So, um, you know, there's basically for, for you to work as an interpreter, you could be on site in a booth for for a conference when you're working simultaneously. You could be in your own home, in your in your home office or studio that you have hopefully set up correctly with all the necessary uh, sound insulation precautions and, 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 and equipment and so forth. Um, uh, there's actually kind of another option in between where you could be working at home with your partner because they, they might come to your house or you go to theirs. And then there's the hub. So a hub is like um, not often um, a, um, the warehouse of a um, an AV company, a sound um, or an event company where they have the interpreting booth set up, but the event itself is actually um, completely um, elsewhere. So they have large screens showing the speakers and the slides and so forth. And they're, they're feeding the sound uh, remotely from the hub to the event and back. So basically that has the advantages of you not working on your own and, and not being responsible for your own equipment and working often with hard consoles, so the traditional consoles in the booth uh, and of having technicians on site to support you um, and um, without having to travel in theory, because obviously the hubs aren't everywhere. So you have to travel to the hub. I'm based in Manchester. So the hub I went I worked in um, three weeks ago was in... Dalgaty Bay. I don't know whether you've ever heard of it. Don't lie. <laughs> it's uh, just north of Edinburgh. So that's, uh, that's a good three hours from here. Um, the other one would be down in London. And um, Germany is probably the country with the highest density of hopes for interpreters.
1: Yeah, that's when I first heard about them uh, at the BDU conference uh, a couple of years ago, three years ago.
0: Yeah. But I mean, anybody who suggests that all remote interpreting can be done from hopes is kidding themselves. That's not going to happen. So... Um, the whole topic of working from home, uh, for interpreting for simultaneous interpreting, um, is sometimes debated, but I think the consensus is now that the, the pandemic has proven that for a lot of interpreters, if not most interpreters, it actually works pretty well. It's just not something that should be done all the time and it needs to be done correctly. So, um, you know, for instance, you should never, as an interpreter, you should never assume liability for your own connection. That needs to be made clear. If the connection fails, you know um, it shouldn't because you've normally used your Ethernet and you've got your backup. But if it fails, if there's a complete power cut in your in your in your neighbourhood, uh, well, that's just what it is. You don't have to pay, and you still get paid. And your booth partner, who's based somewhere else, will just take over. It's just like a flight c- cancellation for an on-site job.
1: Maybe another interesting topic would be pricing, like on-site and travel versus RSI and how much of a factor is that for clients? They're like, okay, well, I mean, if we can do it remote, why don't we do it remote? It's probably going to be cheaper. That would be the assumption from, uh, from kind of a client point of view. But what are your strategies there?
0: For a client, it, they're probably not wrong in saying that it's cheaper for them to use remote interpreter because interpreters um, because they're not paying for, for the travel arrangements or the accommodation. But uh, uh, I, it sounded a bit as though he was suggesting that the actual fee we're charging for working remotely should be lower, and uh, that's more or less the opposite.
1: Maybe it's even higher because it's more demanding, right? Not more demanding, it's even more
0: demanding. It's more demanding. I mean, pricing is... A, is a, Everybody, you know, we're not a regulated profession. We we can't price fix, which I think is a good thing. So everybody needs to be uh, setting their own fees uh, together with a team that they're working with, but... Um, by the same token, you have a certain responsibility for not going too cheap and then ruining ruin the market for everybody else. Um, but yes, pricing is is, is 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 it's interesting because after um, the pandemic and when I did so much online work, I realised that when I went back to on-site work, I need to be a bit more strict with travelling for travel days, for instance, because I've realised you know I can cram so much work into um, the weeks when I don't travel. And now I've started taking jobs again, and I've, you know most places I have to set up the day before. So charging a travel rate is kind of the standard anyway, a travel day. Sorry, um, but um, sometimes you need to ask yourself: um, It's a one-day job, I need to travel for it, so I can charge for the for the project and the travel time. Maybe I should just um, use that opportunity to to hike my rates up again because um, just going one place for one day. I've realized I can make more money working from home. So, um, yeah, pricing is, is interesting. And then the other thing with, you know, working from home, if you agree with a client that your job clearly just takes one hour, give or take a few minutes, you can, and you have two or three jobs like that, you can you can do several jobs in a day. Um, but that should not mean, I mean, you have to be honest to your client you, you, you uh, that, you know, how long you're available for. Um, you shouldn't try and double book. That's that's a very no-no thing to do. Um, but then obviously you have to, um, in your pricing, reflect the fact that you can actually do three jobs in a day. For me, that doesn't mean I, lo- I, I, I lower my fees. It just means that for me, remote can actually become more um, profitable.
1: It's interesting how... Those two years have kind of shown so many people the opportunity cost of travel in such a kind of stark way. For me as well, it's like I travel for two days. I'm like, well, there was a lot of time in the car, on the airport. Like, am I really working at the airport? Not really. Like, you know, I mean, I try, but it's definitely not as efficient as like, you know, here in my setup. So I think the opportunity cost has become a lot clearer.
0: Yeah. Having said that, it's it, you know, there's also, I don't do the job just for money. I also do it because I enjoy it, and I enjoy meeting uh, people that I work for. I enjoy meeting my colleagues, and I do enjoy um, some of the beautiful sites that the jobs take me to, and, and, and the locations. So it's a, uh, 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 yeah. So it's 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 that's also part of uh, the reason that inter- a lot of interpreters um, don't want to just work remotely, which is absolutely understandable. And also for some kind of events, it's very important to for the the delegates or whoever um it is the members of an organization to be there on site and to have interpreters on site that don't just sit in the booth but maybe can help with a little conversation during the break or even over dinner and these kind of things. And that that cannot be done remotely.
1: Yeah. So to end, like what would be your uh, piece of advice for like graduate students who are, you know, right now in an MA program, um, some other program and wanna wanna launch a similar
0: career uh to you? Well I mean it's 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 partially what I said before, it's but it's networking. So You know, you can, you can, you can join an association whilst you're you're a student. Uh, Often you can um, join as a student member, which is probably free with a lot of associations, Uh, um, with the internet, you try and um, attend as many events as possible. Uh, And again, um, so these could be just CPD courses or or networking events, Um, work on your languages. So. I mean, you have to ask yourself as a as a conference interpreter, do I want to go for the institutional market or the private market? I mean, I'm working the private market with a few exceptions. Um, and in the private market, which I would have thought is a bigger market than working for the institutions, you have to have two active languages, so an A and a B or double A if if you're, uh, if you're bilingual. Um, and I think that's sometimes forgotten by some students thinking, um, I think some university courses still focus on the EU and the UN a bit too much where the system is that you just interpret into your A language and just need two, three passive languages, uh, C languages. Um, but I think the, more people probably need to be aware that you need to have a good strong B if you want to make it in the... Uh, in the private market, because most private market jobs are by active So you're in a booth where you have to go in both directions, uh, between English and German, for instance. And uh, even if you want to go for the institutions, you will probably start out in the private market first. So I think that's one big advice. Work on work on at least two languages, so your, your um, native language and one strong other language.
1: Should they have a Twitter account? Because you have at Entourage, and uh, you're very active on Twitter. It's a great account to follow. I Encourage everybody to do that. Uh, has that ever helped you on uh, on kind of the networking side as well?
0: Yes, I mean the one thing I'm not sure is whether it's ever got me a job, because uh, <laughs> you know Twitter Twitter is Twitter is made for bubbles, isn't it? So I, I think most of the people that I interact with are. Um, people who are in, interp- in the interpreting or languages world. Uh, but it definitely helps. I mean, it definitely helps um, with uh, finding out about new developments. You know, I'm not saying Twitter is um, mandatory for everybody who works or who um, um, graduates, but it's it's just, you know, just a simple hashtag, you know, hashtag 1NT, which is like the official interpreting hashtag. If, you, if you're starting out new and you use on Twitter and you, look for that hashtag once every every week or so you'll just follow the developments and um you know not everything that people say on twitter is makes perfect sense and you will see some very contradictory messages <laughs> but um yeah i think uh, go for it i mean while 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 a certain um um industry leader hasn't bought it yet go for it <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, you're definitely a must follow, so at uh definitely one of the accounts that I enjoy following. So Jan, that was uh, super interesting. Thanks so much for taking the time
0: today. Great. I enjoyed it. Thank you.